Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to that passage that was just read for us, Hebrews 11. We'll begin in verse 30, and we'll be processing through verse 40 this morning. If you're visiting Christ Church today, we're glad you're with us. My name's Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here. And uh, we're going to be, in this week and next week, completing a series of messages that we've called Facing Faith. And we've looked at Hebrews chapter 11, and we've been focusing on the stories that are told of lives that demonstrated faith, and our ability to look at how they're all different, yet they're all teaching us how we rely on God. But I'm really excited to tell you about a series we're going to start on September 13th. In fact, I have a bracelet that asks the question, our series is called Why Church? And when you leave this morning, there are these brown containers toward these back entrances, and we hope that you'll go by. There are uh, two different sizes and three different colors of these bracelets, Why Church? And uh, I got one of these. Uh, Samantha gave me one on Monday. They were ready to go, and I began to wear it. And twice this week, they've worked because I was at a Walmart, and I was at a gas station, and they said, what's your bracelet say? And I said, why church? And they're like, absolutely. And they said, what's that about? And I said, how about you come out to our church, and we'll explain it. We're inviting people to come on September 13th for a six-week series of answering the question. I think that all of us, deep down inside, ask, do I really need to be involved in the church? Uh, this isn't just one of those preacher hyperboles. Uh, I've had moments where people have asked me the question or said to me this statement, well, I love Jesus, and I'm right with God, but I don't have to go to church to worship. And I want to caution you because that's very contemporary. It's just not very biblical. So why? Instead of just saying everyone ought to come to church, let's explain it. What does God want us here for? What does he want to do with us? And how does it bless us to be a part of it? So that's the tease. We just encourage you to pick up one of these bracelets, wear it around, and if someone says to you, just ask God to make it a, a hook. And if someone says to you, why church? Say, why don't you come with me for a couple of weeks and we're going to answer these questions. Uh, Isaac mentioned it previously that on Wednesday night, uh, we begin our uh, time together as a church family, our gathering, where there's classes for all ages. Michael DeFazio, who teaches full-time at Ozark Christian College, has also joined us as our teaching pastor here on our staff part-time. He's going to begin to teach on Wednesday nights, what is the church? It's going to be a 12-week series of what does the Bible say from the Old Testament all the way through. What is the purpose of the church? What does it stand for? What's the imagery given? And what can we learn about it? So instead of just coming because you always go to church, I'd encourage you to come on Wednesday night and begin the process of learning more about God's kingdom and what he's building. Jason French is also going to be teaching from the book of Judges in the Old Testament, and and, uh, he's going to handle it well. Uh, One of the reasons we want him to teach Judges is because what happens when we don't fall under God's leadership? What happens when we don't do things God's way? And that Old Testament tells the story of a, of a nation that lost its identity and what God did to restore it. So there's a lot of good things going on, and we would just encourage you to participate as your opportunities arise. Uh, but that all begins Wednesday night, and we're going to take that Wednesday night and tie it into our wide church series. So if you haven't been with us, this is what we've learned over the past seven weeks. Faith is premised on believing that God is good. Not only is God good in, in and of its own character, but God has our best intentions in, in mind to everything he does. He's good to us. 
He desires our success and our growth, not to punish us or use us or misuse us. And we also believe that not only is he good, but that he keeps his promises. His good promises and his bad promises. Now, I've said that for the past few weeks, and I've had some of you very gently. In fact, I've received three emails from people saying, I don't understand what you really mean when you say good promises and bad promises. If he's good, how can God have a bad promise? Let me explain it this way. My father was a good man who gave bad promises. Here's what they sounded like. If I get out of this chair, are you with me? That's a promise, is it not? It's just not a good one. There was a penalty to the consequences of my behavior. If I continue down this path, Dale said to his boys, if I get out of this chair, you're getting a spanking. And what we found is no matter how much you pleaded, once he started out of the chair, once he decided to get up, he was going to fulfill his, he was faithful. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) And there are times when God says, if you go down this path, here's what's going to happen to you. He's not going to spank us, but the consequences of our choices bring about consequences he won't stop. That's a bad promise. Hopefully that makes a little bit more sense when I talk about God's faithful. When he says, if you do this, it's going to harm you, it's true. And when he says, if you do this, it will bless you, it's true. Faith is built on God is good, and he keeps every promise he's ever made because he cares about us. And so when we talk about the people we've talked about, Enoch and Abel and uh, Moses and Abraham and Jacob and Joseph, when we talk about these people of faith that we've been looking at over the past seven weeks, what caused them to live by faith? And here's the answer. They had a right view of God. Now, I don't mean that they were right than that they were smarter or more intelligent than anybody else. They had a proper right view of God by what he revealed to them. If any of us ever think we have God figured out, we're the most mistaken people in the world. Theologians call it beyondness. That there is a part of God that is so far beyond our ability to comprehend that we need to focus on the things he's revealed to us, not every question that we have about God we're going to be able to answer. But what he's revealed to us is enough. And those who walk by faith, walk by faith because they have a right view of God as he's revealed himself. They know that he's a good God. They know that he cares about mankind, every single branch of mankind, every type and flavor of mankind God cares for. So when churches walk around with signs that says God hates this person or God hates this thing or God hates this, we need to be really careful that we're not presenting an image of God that he has not presented of himself. God will deal with sin, but God has worked for eternity to save the sinner. And so we have to present an image, and sometimes the image we present of God reveals that we don't know him very well. And those who walk by faith have a right view of God. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27, it was said of Moses from last week, by faith he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. When Moses had to go into the most powerful man on the face of the earth and tell him that you're going to relieve these three million slaves that have underwritten your kingdom, you're going to let them go, relieve them of their duties so they can go worship a real God. Moses knew his life was at threat and at risk in that circumstance, but he also knew the God who was bigger than Pharaoh. So he obeyed. And that we learned that when you know the invisible God, it causes you to walk by faith. And the audience for this particular book, this letter to the Hebrews, the audience is very much like us. And here's here's what that means. They were trying to hold on to the old things of the Hebrew life and add Jesus into it. They were trying to have the eternal while holding on to the temporary. 
They wanted the sacrifices. They wanted the worship in the temple. They wanted all the things that made them feel secure. But they didn't want to abandon all that and rely completely on Jesus alone. And the challenge for their faith was, you can't, you can't hold on to anything and get a real hold of Jesus. The only way you truly grasp Jesus is to abandon everything else. And they were holding on. So he wrote this letter, or whoever wrote this letter, wrote this letter to them saying, you cannot hold on to the things that are worthless if you want to hold on to the thing that's worthy. And he's calling us to do the same thing. The things that make you feel secure and confident, your jobs, your money, your possessions, your vehicles, what people think of you, your business, you can, you can have all of those things as long as they're not in competition to Jesus. But for many of us, they are our security. He isn't. They are, because I know that I'll have food tomorrow. I know that I could do this. I know I could have this instead of holding on to him. And when we hold on to him, we abandon the things that don't last. That's what it means to walk by faith, knowing who he is. If you remember in our very first week in Hebrews 10, 38, the author wrote these words. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. See, the only thing that pleases God is faith. And to try to hold on to the things that used to give us control and comfort instead of holding completely on to him is shrinking back. It's saying, I want Jesus and instead of I just want Jesus. And I want to trust him and I want to follow him. So all of that background put together. Today I want to talk to you about the courage we need to make the choices we need to truly experience faith. And in this verses, verses 30 through 40, there are three things I'd like to point out. Now, I don't want you to pass out. The first piece is the longest. So if you're measuring it going, we're going to be here till 3, you'll be out of here at 2.15, I promise you, because there's a Little League baseball game I want to see, okay? So you'll be home in time for that. All right, here we go. Number one, we have to have the courage to conquer through the struggle. It's not going to be easy. It's not intended to be easy. Life is hard because this world is broken. Everything we rely on is twisted. It's all about power and control, who has and who doesn't. It's not about sharing and giving and being a true community. We struggle with all of this. And there's a struggle to live by faith in the world in which we live. Look at Hebrews 11.30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. I want to pause there. The historic gap between verses 29 and 30 is amazing. You know, when we last left our superhero Moses, he had just led the people out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and trusted the Lord. And then we go to verse 30, and we're at the walls of Jericho. And what happened in between there is amazing. Moses got them to the Jordan River, and he sent 12 spies to the other side. And they began to see these massive cities and fortresses, these armies, these giant people that their eyes had, they were massive, they were They couldn't be conquered, and they began to fear. So the 12 came back, and 10 of the 12 said, they're too big, they're too powerful, and we're too puny. Let's not do this. And two came back, Joshua and Caleb. And they came back, and they said, yeah, they're massive. It's intimidating, but our God is bigger. And the nation heard the 10. And this is what happens when you do committees. They heard the 10, and they decided... Our God isn't that big. And they sided with the ten, and God said to Moses, you tell all of those who would not step out by faith that they will not go into the promised land. They will die on this side of the river. And for 40 years, they ran in circles until everyone who would not walk by faith was gone. And Joshua then, 
led them across the Jordan River into the promised land. And I'd love to tell you at that moment when they got there, there was a big welcoming party and there was an abandoned town that they just moved right in and everything was given to them, but that'd be a lie. That's where you hit verse 30. When they crossed the Jordan and got into the promised land, the first thing they saw was this mammoth town called Jericho. It was amazingly built. It was protected and safe and secure. It was barred and walled and everything else you'd want to add to that. And they had an army. For 440 years, the Israelites had never fought a battle. They had no weapons. And here they go, and the first thing they see is the walls of Jericho. Now, I don't want to be a preacher, because sometimes it bothers me the way we use Scripture to make bumper stickers and plaques for walls. It's not effective. But I don't want to be a preacher that takes the story of David and Goliath and says, well, everyone's got a giant. Go slay them. And it's not really why the story's told. When you look at Jericho, I do want to draw this comparison, so forgive me if it's a stretch. Many of us want to walk by faith until we see the size of Jericho, and then we say, check please, I tried and I can't do it. And here's the moral of the story. No, you can't conquer Jericho. God never told them to conquer Jericho. He told them to face Jericho, to confront it. And if our faith is going to grow, every one of us has to see a moment in our life where Jericho's present and say, God didn't tell me by my power to take it apart. He said he would take it apart if I confronted it by faith. So there's your Jericho. So let me be the preacher I don't want to be. What's your Jericho? Because you know what the thing is that's keeping you from trusting Jesus is probably something that's so big for you, you can't imagine it'll ever go away. Watch what God does here. God has this amazing plan. It's brilliant, in fact. He says to Joshua, here's what I want you to do. Now, Joshua was a fighter. But he said, Joshua, here's what I want you to do. Put all the preachers in the front. You know, the guys that don't do much? Put them out in front, all the priests and preachers. Put them in front and have them lead, with a band behind them, have them lead all of the Israelites around the city the first time, one time, and nobody say a word. Just shh. Just walk around the city. Now, you're thinking, okay, what are the people in Jericho thinking? Isn't that cute? Well, here's what I want you to do on day two. Do it again. Now on day three, we're going to be absolutely nuts. Do it again. On day four, walk around. Day five, even more quiet. Day six, keep the preachers up front. Walk around. On day seven, we're going to blow their minds. Do it seven times and then blow horns and watch what happens. Time out. Jericho's scary enough without acting like an idiot, right? They look at God and they go, this is embarrassing. We have no weapons. We're just going to walk around going, shh, everybody. That's intimidating? For the love, what are we doing here? And you're going to do it for seven days? And it's, it's risky too. What, what stopped the people from Jericho from dropping rocks on top of them or shooting arrows at them or pouring oil on them and killing them? Nothing except God's protection. You see, sometimes God asks us to do things by faith that we would never choose to do. They're risky, they're embarrassing, and they don't make any sense to us. But on day seven, after the seventh time, and they obeyed. You see, it wasn't what they were doing. It's what they were learning to do by trusting him. On the seventh day, they blew the trumpets and the walls fell down. They didn't touch him. They ran into the city, and the people of Jericho freaked out and ran away, and all their possessions were captured by the Israelites, and they had to look at each other and go, are you kidding me? We walked in a circle for seven days. We made a total of 13 trips. We kept our mouths shut, and we won a battle. You see, most of us never see Jericho fall because we won't stay the seven days until we're asked to. And they did, 
And look what happened. You see, verse 31 then blows my mind. It says here, by faith the prostitute Rahab, uh, excuse me, time out. There is more said in that little phrase than almost anything else in this entire chapter in my estimation. Here's why. By faith, the prostitute Rahab. Okay, let's begin. This is the first Gentile mentioned in the chapter on faith. First non-Jew. That would be significant to that audience, maybe not so much to us Gentiles. But this is someone who's not one of the chosen, who's exhibiting faith and experiencing salvation. So A, it's non-Jew. Second of all, she's not a dude. Okay? That doesn't mean anything to us, but it did to them. A woman mentioned as a great act of faith in a patriarchal society? That's weird. And thirdly, if you didn't notice, her occupation's not the best. So she's not a Jew, she's not a dude, and she's a prostitute. But before we sit in judgment, remember the truth. That women in that culture, especially in the culture she came from, could not have gone out and gotten a job or occupation. If she did not have a father or husband to care for her or son, she probably had to sell her body to feed her family, to provide for herself. So she's destitute, she's not the right gender, and she's not the right ethnicity, and all of a sudden, here you have a moment where it says, now knowing that, let's begin. By faith, the prostitute Rahab because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Joshua's a smart dude. He's already been, he's seen Jericho. He realized how massive the city was 40 years ago. He sends in two spies. I don't think it's insignificant that he went in with 12, 10 came back and said no. How many did he send the second time? Two. He's not playing with committees. He's like, go figure this out. He sends them in, they get in the city, they're discovered, they hide in the prostitute's house. When they come to find the the servant or the or excuse me the spies, she lies and hides them on the roof, hides them on the roof, and she says, "No, no, no, they're 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 not here." And then when they're ready to escape in the middle of the night, she says to them, "Remember how I saved your life. When you come to capture this city, remember what I did for you." There's faith there, isn't there? In fact, look at it with me in Joshua chapter two verse nine. She said, "I know that the Lord has given this land to you." And that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. She has a right understanding of who? Of God. It has nothing to do with Joshua or the people. It has to do with their God. And then verse 11. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Faith comes when anybody gets a right understanding of who God is. And so the spies say to her something amazing. They said, there's a scarlet, I want you to hang a scarlet thread outside your window. And when we come to capture the city, we're going to look for that scarlet thread. And everyone who's in your house that day will be saved. Doesn't it sound like a Gentile Passover? Blood on the top of the doorpost. Scarlet thread hanging out the window. God marks us as his. And when the walls came down, they went in, they found her family, and she was rescued. She was honored for her faith. She was saved because of her faith. And lastly, if you don't know the rest of her story, it's pretty powerful. She became the mother of a young man named Boaz. Boaz would become the husband of a young woman named Ruth. You can read her story in your Bible. And Ruth became the great-great-grandmother of King David. And King David would temporarily sit on a throne that Jesus will sit on forever. If you don't think God's writing your story, you're not paying attention. 
By faith, she was not only saved when the walls of Jericho came down, but she was saved for eternity by the grace of God, and she contributed to a lineage of Jesus that's changed the world by faith. Verse 32. I like this because the author of Hebrews sounds like a preacher like me who's running out of time. What more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned into strength. And who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies, women received back their dead and raised to life again. Gideon started with a fairly good-sized army, 32,000. By the time he was done, God whittled it down to 300, didn't give him weapons, and they defeated an army of 150,000. Barak took 10,000 men and fought a king with much larger army and won. Samson, I don't know previous to this, to be honest with you, one of the things I learned in this study is I don't know that I'd ever called Samson a man of faith. In fact, he seemed like a failure. He seemed like he's in the Bible to show us what life's not to be like. But then you see the end of his story, and it's amazing. When his eyes have been gouged out, his hair has been shaved off because they understood his power. When he had none of the special power God gave him, he still knew who God was. And with his hands on the pillars, at this decadent party that was mocking God and using the things of the temple, Samson did what he knew God could do through him, and he asked God by faith to give him the power to sacrifice himself on behalf of God. That's how his life ended. Jephthah, he knocked off the Ammonites by capturing 20 cities with a very tiny army. David spent his whole life facing incredible odds, but he chose to trust God even when he was running for his life. And Samuel never fought a battle, was never a king, but Samuel was the one who spoke for God in the midst of Israel losing their identity and trusting gods of other worlds. And it, and it says here that their weakness was turned to strength. None of them were chosen by God because they were supernatural. None of them were chosen by God because they were better than any of us. They were all gifted by God, and through faith, they did what they did, just like you and I can. So, we have to understand that this walk of faith will be filled with struggles. But is God, church, talk to me, is God good? And can he be trusted? Even when life doesn't play out like a fairy tale. Good. The second thing we see, and it's shorter, is that the courage to continue in suffering. Not only in the struggle, but in the suffering. Verse 35. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, destitute, persecuted, mistreated, and the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. See, faith is powerful when it overcomes struggles, but faith is even more powerful when it's overcome suffering. Whether it's a Jericho that intimidates you or whether you have people that were tied up with ropes and swords were placed and if they did not denounce God and worship the other God, they were cut open, they were cut in half, they were killed. Some were dressed in animal clothing and hunted down like animals and tortured and brutalized. All of this took place. And the author of Hebrews says, when your life isn't going in the textbook fairy tale American dream of what it means to be a Christian, when standing up for the truth gets you fired 
or loses a relationship or causes you great pain, when all of the truth of standing up with light in a dark world happens, do we believe that God is good and he can be trusted? And when your life is at risk, in a moment that I don't want any of us to face, but if we did and if we should, would the fact that God did not stop our executors from killing us make him less God? No. And if he did not stop us while we were being tortured and harmed for the sake of the gospel, would that make him less God? No. And the author says here that they chose to not take deliverance from man if it did not come by the hand of God. Why? Verse 35. So they would gain a better resurrection. I have falsely believed for too long that there wasn't a sniff of the resurrection in the Old Testament kept looking for it. I read the book of Ecclesiastes and I see the author of Ecclesiastes talk about you get one life and it's over, make the best of it. And I'm like, there just seems this absence of hope. And then I read Hebrews 11 and I realize I've been misinformed and I've not paid attention because he says, or she says, whoever wrote it, that this entire story, that they knew there was something out there that the world could not offer and they held out for it, even stopping their deliverance because they believed in a greater resurrection. Here's the truth of the day. Death cannot take from us what Jesus died to give us. And if we don't hold on to that, and if that's not a statement that we live through every day, we can be misled or distracted to believe that our satisfaction now is greater than anything. I'm here to tell you, death, even death itself, suffering and struggles cannot take from us what Jesus died to bring us. Hope. Life, power, and resurrection. And I love this. Maybe this is just my cocky competitiveness, which I got a little bit of. But it says the world was not worthy of them. And I believe we live in a day and an age where the world's telling me all the time, I'm not worthy of it. And they're saying that after all they've done for us, roads and police and fire and all the things government gives us, all the things powerful people have allowed us minions to have, all the things that this world's done for us, and we treat it with such disrespect by not going along with its laws, by not agreeing with its principles, by believing there's a better way than they've chosen. And I hope I'm not being too derogatory, but I'm here to tell you the world's looking at you and I as believers, and if we stand up for the truth, they're going to say, you're not worth keeping around here. And my Bible tells me, no, if we stand up for the light and the truth of faith, this world's not worthy of of what we bring it. But we weren't worthy of it either, were we? And Jesus brought it to us. Our testimony to the world is not how right we are. Our testimony to the world is how good our message is for everybody. How it's hope-filled. Even if it costs us our life, we must preach the truth of the gospel so the goodness of Jesus Christ can be seen, so the world can answer the questions I've been asking you for eight weeks. Is he good and can he be trusted? And that's our message. So it's the courage to conquer through the struggle. It's the courage to continue even in suffering. And then I love this one. It's the courage to count on salvation. It's the way God's going to choose to rescue us, not the way we want to rescue ourselves. Verse 39. These were all commended for their faith. Notice they all were. Different. They all showed faith differently. But it was faith that commended them. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. God promises us this, church. He will redeem us. He will reward us. 
and he will restore us. And if he does none of those in this lifetime, he will do every one of those as he promised. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles as I close this morning to 1 Peter chapter 1. In 1 Peter chapter 1, I want you to hear a different voice telling you the same thing the author of Hebrews is telling you. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 16. Now remember, Peter's life was a train wreck in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You get him in the book of Acts when he understands the resurrection and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he becomes one speaking about all the things he misunderstood. Verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. Just time out here. What Peter is saying is, The prophets, when they were speaking of a future hope, wondered what God was going to do. How was he going to do it? And Peter said, it wasn't until Jesus came that all the prophecies aligned perfectly and all the scholars looked back and went, oh, yeah. But they spoke their prophecies because they believed that God would keep his promise. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. The angels were like, what's he doing? And the prophet said, what's he doing? And Jesus said, I'll show you what he's doing. Therefore, church, us, you and me, therefore prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. I'd like to camp there on verse 14. There's a lot of things you and I have done in our lives because it felt good. There's a lot of things we've done because people told us it's okay. And sometimes we were just so tired of suffering and hurting and being lonely that we took whatever satisfaction we could. And, we, and people told us all the time, well, you ought to feel good. You ought to get something in this life, right? And in our ignorance, because we didn't know the goodness of God, we traded the goodness of God for things that were temporary. And Peter's telling us, remember the goodness of God and trust it and find in it satisfaction. And then he says, be holy because I am holy. If you make the word holy perfection, that verse will frighten you and you'll quit. But when you understand that holiness is being set apart, it's being pulled out of its old use to be used specifically for what it's meant to be used. As parents, you've said this to your children. My dad said it to me. I've said it to my sons. I know your friends do that, but but your mother and I, we've chosen we don't do that as a family. And we're not better than anybody, but we are set apart for something different. We're not going to allow that. That's not okay. We're going to be set apart. And this is what Peter's saying. If you know who God is and you know that he can be trusted, even when life becomes tragic, church, I'll ask you one more time today. Is God good? And can he be trusted? Then let's set our minds on the things that matter most. Let's set ourselves apart for something greater than anything this world can give us. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.